Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory podcast. Today, we are back with another great episode of Fully Automated. In this episode, we're going to be taking a bit of a step back from the more grand political themes that we are sometimes preoccupied with uh, to do an episode focused on the pedagogical possibilities and challenges presented by contemporary technology. In the discipline of international relations, there are very few that can claim to have the experience or insight of Dr. Sebastian Kampf senior lecturer in peace and conflict studies at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland, Australia. Kempf is a scholar of global media politics. He focuses on the impact of changing media technologies on contemporary conflicts. He is also the producer with UQX and EDX and convener of Media War X, one of UQ's massive open online courses, are MOOCs, probably one of the largest political science MOOCs in the world. For some, MOOCs seem to represent a sort of ultimate form of democratized education, whereas for others, they seem to herald the dawn of a new dystopian age. For Kempf, now a longtime veteran of online teaching, it's important to bring some nuance to this conversation. Pedagogy can make all the difference. And as you'll hear in this conversation, Kemp and his partners at UQ put a lot of thought and material resources into their approach, pushing the medium to the very edge of what it can accomplish. Here then, Kemp discusses the minutiae of how he and his colleagues actually built and delivered the course. On the one hand, they avoided the traditional lecture form in favor of what they call spaced learning, because research shows that human beings do kind of struggle to concentrate for very long periods of time in online learning. On the other hand, and in a break with the usual stereotype of dry pre-recorded lectures so frequently associated with online learning, a central theme of Media War X is the seriousness with which they approach the class as a media production in its own right. So, for example, portions of the course are presented in a kind of road movie or documentary style, blending diverse archive footage with on-site discussions from locations all around the world, and interviews with well-known academics and experts, including the likes of Glenn Greenwald. We'll also hear Seb discuss the ethos of hacktivism that he tries to bring to his online teaching. Thus, he uses uh, discovery assignments, for example, to teach about everything from how search algorithms work to how we have become addicted to being online and interacting online uh, to the power of big data and surveillance. In this way, the course develops a kind of crowdsource content. Finally, I ask Sebastian about COVID and where and how it has changed the fate of MOOCs and online instruction in general. After 18 months of more or less totally online instruction, how does his experience of working with and thinking about MOOCs affect his perception of the future of online education in a post-pandemic world. For those curious, Sebastian Kampf can be found on Twitter at S-E-B-K-A-E-M-P-F, Seb Kempf, and his podcast, Higher Ed Heroes, can be found on all leading podcast apps. His 
piece from International Studies Perspectives with Carrie Finn, which we discuss in the interview, can be found linked in the show notes for this episode. So uh, with no further ado, we'll jump straight into the interview. Here is Sebastian Kahn. Friends, we are uh, back with another episode of Fully Automated, and it is my great pleasure uh, to be joined today by uh, Sebastian Kampf, uh, who is a senior lecturer in peace and conflict studies at the University of Queensland. But that's that's not all he is, folks. I uh, uh, partly in the interest of full disclosure, partly just out of out of a, a, a great joy. Uh, and uh, I, I will just say that I've known Sebastian for a very, very long time. Uh, roughly, I think since we were both about 19 or 20 years old, um, we have known each other. We were uh, both uh, participants and attendees uh, at, what was it called, Sebastian? Uh, Cambridge? Europe, 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 Europe 2020. 2020. Europe 2020 at, at Cambridge University. It was a long, long time ago. I don't think we ever fully lost touch in the intervening years, but 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 probably lost touch a little here and there. Uh, but um, it's just very interesting that our careers have kind of followed somewhat similar trajectories insofar as we've both found a home in academia. We know we, not only that, we're both international relations scholars and you know, we do have the luxury of of seeing each other from time to time at, at conferences and whatnot. Although, obviously, not recently because of because of COVID. Uh, but Sebastian, I can't really do this show in the normal way because this isn't a normal a normal interview. How, how are you? Uh, let's just start there. Nick, first of all, great. Uh, thanks for for having me. Uh, I'm I'm doing really well. Thank you. Um, you know, it's a wonderfully uh, warmish uh, spring day here on the east coast of Australia, which means like, you know, you can walk around in a t-shirt and at night it's still a bit fresh and cool. But also just wanted to pick up on what you said earlier. It's uh, funny, you know, when you think that, um, you, I think you're the only person I know amongst colleagues now in our field, IR, um, who I've known from undergraduate days, yeah. but also <laughs> not through IR, but through us doing these different conferences with the this whole other thing department. yeah yeah so that's a uh, kind of kind of special and nice it is it is for me too uh now look uh you have kind of in as i've been sort of f from afar shall we say um uh, i've i've seen your career develop um you're you're someone who is known uh as a as a as a scholar of conflict studies of war and also, I think importantly, and perhaps unusually for international relations, because there aren't many of you out there, someone who's very preoccupied with pedagogy. And uh, so one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you today was because you've been up to some very innovative uh, work in your teaching using massive online courses. So uh, there's a number of things I kind of want to hit on. Uh, building out of that today with you, want to talk about pedagogy, want to talk about your experience implementing online teaching, 
Um, perhaps later in the hour, we can talk about uh, you know where you see all this going now in the in in the wake of COVID and the uh, absolute explosion of online teaching uh, that has taken place in the last eighteen months or so. And then finally, I want to ask you about you know how all this affects your research and, and your work uh, academically. But um, let's just start with the, the the idea of the MOOC, its history, uh, where it came from. Um, where and when did they first emerge? And perhaps even more importantly, who who wanted them? Who who called for this? Okay, so um, MOOC, eh? it, it will cause immediate reactions yeah. amongst the listeners here, right? And I think part of what we want to do is is unpack that and and go through the different facets of some of the discussions, I think, or or views that we all have have or have held um, around around MOOCs. I mean, in terms of the history, it's a relative straightforward story we can tell. So um, in, I think, 2001, we see the first kind of experimenting at MIT with um, them deciding, let's just use everything we have in our course and just throw it out online and make it freely available. And then sort of from that moment onwards, we see gaining momentum, uh, which eventually in 2012 leads to the foundation of three of the very prominent MOOC providers who all come on board. That's uh, Coursera, Udacity, and edX. And, uh, you know, that was quite a big moment leading time magazine to declare 2012 the the year of the mooc you know you're the mooc grandiose the grandiose journalistic terms and so and and from that point onwards it it has been a big growth market that we have seen so that for example um by then 2017 mm -hmm. we see that there is amongst the top five MOOC providers globally over 9,000 courses available there's something like um amongst the top three 30 million learners being registered so you know like it's it's quite an interesting story of that coming uh to the surface and uh with with that kind of a claim that that we see across these top MOOC providers of quite often in the explicit language of you know democratizing learning, i.e., making right. through the internet that's now available the ability to do university courses for free online. Okay, so that's sort of in a way how this has come about, and uh, who wanted those? I think that's a really good question to ask. I mean, what's interesting is that many of the original and still really big MOOC providers are closely tied to universities. Yeah, So you have, for example, uh, Udacity starting at Stanford and now including um, Princeton, University of Michigan, a few others. edX was initially founded by both Harvard and MIT and edX is then the one where uh, and all, of course, this, this happening in 2012 and then 2013, my own university, University of Queensland, joined edX as one of those members. And I think, you know, what, what drove them was um, for, for many universities, and I think it's, it's fair to say it still is, mm -hmm. um, you know, two particular interests. The first one is, as universities like to do, and I think we all know this, is 
let's raise our profile that gives us a really good way to get PR out. And, you know, there is a, right. uh, and I'm not shying away from using the term, there's a quite propagandistic element to that. Yeah. Okay. Which leads to a kind of second motivation, which has been that kind of logic. Well, if we can showcase our most exciting courses, some of our best teachers to the world, then yes, people can do this for free, but that we hope will translate into students getting attracted to us and then enrolling in our courses and eventually we reap the tuition fees from those students, right? So I think that is, it would be naive to dismiss those or ignore those kinds of motivations. Um, there's, there's more to that, however, and I'm not sure if you want me to go into this now or you want to follow up? Sure. On well, we can we can sort of um, uh, re revisit the ver various components of what you've just laid out there, I think. But that's a good um, kind of kind of overview. Um, so, yeah, maybe let's just sort of park some of the pedagogical nuances of this for a minute and just look at your own work with with MOOCs because you have um, had this this program, uh, Media War X. Uh, running in, in at University of Queensland for 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 some time now, I think since 2017. In a nutshell, it's um, it's kind of an international relations course. Um, it's focused on the content-wise. It's focused on the intersection of war, media, technological change. But you, I can imagine putting myself in your shoes, kind of confronted with the opportunity. Uh, I don't know if this is something that you when when was the moment that this potential crystallized for you that you saw yourself kind of like wait a minute this could be done in a MOOC this could be done uh through this new emerging um methodology that's uh, empowered by these new technologies um but you know I can imagine my in, in, in that kind of moment myself uh you know wondering like how the hell am I going to get this material to potentially thousands of students um that's not something I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that in IR, we're all that good at pedagogical development anyway. Uh, so we can have that conversation later, maybe if you want, but nevertheless, um, I think I would be overwhelmed. So, so talk me through just that early stage of this idea. Um, how did it happen that you were invited to, to present or to teach via a MOOC? And then what were your initial thoughts in terms of like, how you were going to design the course and what kind of pedagogical influences I think that you were going to have, sort of have in that respect. Like it was a bit of a, uh, I wouldn't say roller coaster, but it was a process until I then decided to actually go ahead and I got the go ahead from the university to do it, um, where I was kind of thrown back and forth in my own thinking and motivation and positions. Like the, you know, I had heard, because UPU had been involved in, in edX with like MOOC, Massive Open Online Courses since 2013, you hear about it, right? When you're yeah. on campus and, and so on. And so I felt like always that there was something interesting about that idea, but I also felt that there was for me this kind of skepticism around well, you know, am I just going to be the kind of show horse for the university and, and you know, is it just <laughs> sort of the outward looking, let's showcase and, 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 and do this in a kind of propagandistic, uh, propagandistic way. And um, I think what happened was that I had, 
um, won a number of teaching awards here at the university and in Australia that the university itself um, approached me at a point and they had said, uh -huh. look, we haven't, we have done MOOCs in, you know, in engineering, in various fields, but we haven't really done much in the social sciences and uh -huh. certainly not in, in politics. And we would really like to do something. And so we'd like to start having a conversation with you if you might be interested in doing that. And that mm -hmm. uh, led me to engage with those people who at UQ are running, organizing and producing those MOOCs. And there's a whole production house that has been centered at the, at the um, uh, Institute of Teaching and Learning Innovation, mm. uh, weirdly with the acronym ITALY with an I at the end. <laughs> and what was really interesting here is that they succeeded over many conversations to dispel my concerns that the only motivation that my university was doing this was to attract future fee-paying students or for, for sort of propaganda. I mean, it is there, right? I don't want to discount that. But right. what really convinced me here is that they were saying that as that institute, they said, well, our vice chancellor has decided that this is the, the thing we're going to invest in very, very heavily. And, um, you know, investing here means that at that particular point, when they started off, like for each course they produced, the university was giving those projects 150,000 uh, Australian dollars, which I think translates into something like 100 similar amount in the US, huge right. amount of money. And yeah. did, that didn't even include the in-house costs or the personnel, right? That was already, um, that was outside that budget. And, you know, massive amounts of money being invested into this. And what they, what that Institute Italy was successful in convincing me of was to say that we do not know how long that initiative will last, how long these funds will be coming in. And we are essentially an institute that's interested in looking into how we can innovate learning through online technologies. And so they were very explicit in saying, what we're not interested in is you taking a course that you're already teaching on campus and just doing like lecture videos and we put this out there. Instead, what we want to see is that you rethink and rework how this course has been going on campus and really adjust and fine tune it together with learning designers we're going to give you to work alongside you into a very innovative teaching learning environment. And we kind of do this so we can learn, experiment, and we want this to then translate back into how you then apply changes to your on-campus teaching, right? And I thought, hey, this is like really straight down my alley. I had been teaching an online course uh, already in 2008, 2009, until 2013, 100% online. So I felt like, okay, I know this, but you know, I, I kind of did this in the way that I thought this was okay. But so I wasn't really, didn't have any reservations to engage with the idea of like an online learning thing. Um, and, and then they um, basically, um, you know, it was, a, it was a vetting process and that vetting process went over a number of months. So they were saying, okay, so they went to look at how I was lecturing, how I was teaching in the classroom. They made me write up the whole curriculum. But already at that point, I did this with one of their learning designers who I was working with the whole time. They did all sorts of tests run in studio. How do I look in front of a camera? And then 
And then basically, um, and working with the team and testing everything out so that I could get a sense whether I feel that I'm okay with it. But of course, for them as well to see, you know, is that someone we can actually seriously place in front of a camera and, and do this with. And then after that sort of two, three months process, I had to do a formal pitch and presentation in front of that institute. And then they took a decision on whether they're gonna, and then they took the decision that they'll be gonna go ahead with this. And at that point, we also had had like all the budget already plugged in and lined up. So, you know, there was a lot of negotiation going on with my head of school, with the faculty, with that institute, because we had in the end like $66,500 wow. as a budget. And um, I had, I had um, and you know, the big chunk of that budget was to provide for two course buyouts for me right. so that I would have time over the course of a year to actually dedicate that time to that production itself. And so, yeah. you know, for me, that seemed like, oh, this looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. It was, looked also like very, very challenging, to be honest. Yeah. And but actually, I want to, I want if I, if I can jump in there, because there's a lot of yeah. people maybe listening to this. Some are going to be academics, some are not. And, you know, th they might listen to other episodes of this show and go like, well, how does this show fit? Uh, well, I think we're going to look at some of that later, but just, you know, sort of, uh, but just for right now, uh, for listeners who maybe can't grasp why a year of your life might be required to to implement this, I, I want people to understand that what, what we're going to be talking about is traveling to a lot of different places in the world, right? I mean, recording. You you you, you yourself went on site with leading scholars, academics, specialists, practitioners in numerous places around the world to create these small little uh, vignette videos, you know, seven to eight minutes long sometimes, um, discussions, interviews, debates with various people to, to try to get the material together for this, right? So when we're saying a year to put this together, I mean, we're, we're talking about a lot of work in terms of production, scheduling, booking, getting equipment, moving it around. This is not a casual undertaking here. Uh, Sebastian has, you know, I, I would imagine along the way here had to retool as something as of a movie producer as well as uh, an IR scholar. Is that is that am I? I'm probably overstating this, but but if I am, you can tell me how. Yeah, no, I think actually it's a very important point you're raising here. So, um, you know, I've been, um, I've 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 been attracted to film and international relations right. and movie making um, already from the time when I was lucky enough to spend half a year of my PhD at Brown University oh, uh, at right. the time when uh, and, and James Sedarian was my mentor at that time and ah. I was obviously doing my PhD research but that was the time when James really started branching out into filmmaking uh -huh. and and his sort of uh, you know global media labs that he was running and I could either participate or or just observe and and that really inspired me. And I think there was the convergence of my interest in IR and the interest of like film and filmmaking at the same time. And I had to kind of put this aside, right? We always do in one project, we can't do, <laughs> can't do everything, but that was sort of the initial spark. And I'm eternally thankful to, to James for, for having had that experience. And um, so that's part of the reason why 
you know, post PhD alongside the research I've been doing on violent conflict, war, and the laws of war, have has meant that I've I've added um, kind of information technology media dimension to the research itself. But that kind of feeling of hey, kind of doing something more in the production of things had never gone away. And so now I was given this opportunity here to do like really high quality videos as part of that MOOC, and so there was a certain attraction there. But it was very clear to me that if I have that kind of budget, I actually want to, you know, you think, you think very large of like, how would you bring a topic like this alive? And I've always felt when I'm teaching a normal course is that, you know, we know so many experts. I mean, just if we look in the field of our yeah. colleagues in IR, right, it would be so great if you could just quickly bring someone in who's an expert on that, who would be much better at telling this right. than I would be. Right. And it would be awesome for students or learners to be able to engage and directly learn from them. So for me, it was like, okay, I want to actually, I could really see that and envisage that, that, that MOOC as like consisting of, in a way, like, like a road movie where we take the course on a road. And so in the end, and I made this a precondition in the negotiations and said, okay, like that needs to be in the budget that with a filmmaker, I can travel around the world. And we did this with, I think, spent like 41 days yeah. uh, going to shooting in 13 different locations, interviewing <laughs> 24 experts from obviously academics, but yeah. journalists from military folks and so on, who kind of spoke to the different aspects and tried to bring in that, that dimension that you're not just sort of staring at a screen and there's a studio, but you actually get exposed to these different venues people's experts and opinions and so that was the kind of premise for me i wanted to they at, at that institute that oversaw the production they 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 always uh, had to kind of tame me because i just wanted to have this shot as a road movie throughout and that wasn't really possible but in retrospect they said that that was probably the closest they ever got to producing something like that um, and maybe as a kind of final point on that yeah um you know, when, when the university said, okay, look, this is how normally how this works in terms of the budget. They said, we, we usually we give, the budget can have like one course buyout, right? And the rest can be other stuff that we need to use it for. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not stupid. I talked to other colleagues and other faculties and schools here who had done MOOCs before, and they had all told me that one course buyout was never enough, right? It really did that. And so then I went back to them because I had this, this very clear sense that the university really, they, they really wanted me to do this. So I said, okay, but I need to get two courses as a buyout, right? I'm, otherwise I'm not going to do it. And they bought it. So, you know, that, that meant I had a bit oh, more space, Yeah, but it still meant that, you know, this, this took a year of my life, the whole wow. thing from like the early stages to, you know, the planning, the production, all this kind of putting this together. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, certainly that's sort of how how I approach that. Brilliant. I love it. Um, I'm also quite jealous. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, all right. So um, let's talk about actually delivering this thing. I mean, uh, obviously, there's the, the the production and everything that 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 sounds very romantic and fun. But but comes a time the rubber has to meet the road. So I want to ask you about the actual innovative approaches and they I, I don't I don't think it's any exaggeration to say innovative um, 
uh, you, you um, are going to sort of have to bring in some of your real world teaching experience, maybe some abstract theories are going to be guiding you along the way here. Uh, technology itself is going to be a factor because this is a mediated class. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the, the, the sort of pedagogical side? I mean, I know just in your writing about this course, the concept of space learning looms large for you, for example. So maybe we could start there and then we can maybe once we've dealt with that, then we can move into to this other fascinating topic um, that that is is very present in your writing about about this experience, which is hacktivism. And I want to know more about that. So maybe space learning first and then hacktivism. Yeah. So space learning. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of these these big buzzwords, you know. And um, the but the <clears throat> so that's in a way um, the idea or the realization, and that doesn't come to a surprise to anyone, is that you know, like the way in which we uh, tend to act in in the lecture theater is actually a very antiquated and not very efficient way of actually enabling students to learn effectively. And that's the stock standard an hour, two hour lectures where it's just a monologue from someone to the out to the masses. And so it's kind of a passive consumption that students go through. And we all know the issue of attention spans and so on. And the idea of space learning essentially means we actually break these things up. And I like to describe this um, um, through, um, you know, this, this very nice, um, saying that, for example, Confucius had, where he, I think, rightly says that I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. And so the idea of spaced learning really is to make students do stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you actually... Um, what, what we have done was to say, let's, uh, we've got, we've got um, seven topics in this MOOC, Let's break each topic down into small videos. And each uh -huh. video, and all research shows that the sweet spot is between five to eight minutes, right? right. So most, we produced for the whole course, 65 videos. Most of them are in that, in that time frame. not all of them are. And what you do as a student is like, you watch the first video and it's immediately followed by a particular task we ask the learner to do. You know, do a quiz, there's a discussion forum, here's some critical reading, here is a kind of test we do. And then once you do this, you go to the next video, followed immediately by another task that you need to do. So it kind of is like the, the learners feel that they're constantly engaged very actively in what's actually happening. They're tested on it, they can go back to it. Um, and so in the, in the course, in the MOOC itself, we have, as I said, like 65 videos, but we also have, I think, something like 73 or 78 of these tasks that come immediately afterwards, right? And what, what it enables you to do through that principle or that, that um, you know, method of space learning is to actually immediately test deepen knowledge and understanding, to critically analyze, to question, all these sorts of things. So it becomes, in effect, a more fun activity in the sense of like, don't just actually hear because you're bound to forget. Don't just, just make them see and then they only remember, but make them do stuff. And that's sort of where they really start understanding. 
And um, you know, I was I was new to that. Right. So this was again one of the effects of working with Carrie, that learning designer, uh -huh. um, who is uh, from the U.S. originally, and you know, who who was wonderful because I don't have any idea about these kinds of pedagogies. Right. So the, the great thing was that we spent many, 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 many days where, you know, I was just talking about ideas that I had and she would be able to pick them up and translate them into, oh, here is a great way in which we could organize this in terms of learning. Right. So it was she wasn't an area specialist. She's by training a social scientist, but she could relate. But she had the kind of pedagogical insights. And so for me, this was a wonderful learning expertise. You know, like the thing I've always dreamed of is that I need someone who can translate this. Right. And so, and, and, you know, it was a very trusting relationship. So I was very happy to go with also her judgments. And that kind of led to us structuring this around these lines. Brilliant. Okay. So uh, you were. I like the Confucius quote, but so, so this focus on doing, uh, brings us then I think neatly to this question of hacktivism. I don't want to put too much on this, but it, but it does seem to be kind of, um, a key kind of ethos, if you will, that you bring to a number of the topics that constituted the delivery points of your, um, of your syllabus. Right, because you're going to be talking about in this course. It's a course. Let's remember, it's a course about the cha the changing nature of media technology and the relationship with war and security. So, we have to talk about Google algorithms. We have to talk about the evolution of the global media scape. Uh, we have to talk about data mining, surveillance, uh, and we have to talk about the politics of. You know all of this right how of media itself if you will right so so um you're going to be bringing this ethos of doing um uh, into into the this giant thousand person learning environment learning geography if you will take us from here what what how are you going to get these students working on these things and 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 what does the platform allow you to do in a way that maybe a typical classroom wouldn't allow you to do. Yeah. So hacktivism, um, uh, full disclosure and acknowledgements in a very <laughs> admired way. Um, this is something I borrowed from Ron Debert. Right. At, at, at the Citizen Lab in Toronto, who, who I think is one of the most outstanding scholars in a lot of these kinds of areas. And um, it, it, it denotes not what we have come to associate hackers or hacktivism with, namely to, to do an illegal task and to break into some form of a computer system, but it actually draws on the etymological original sense of that term, which was about developing an intellectual curiosity about technology. To actually not take it as, Ron Diebert would call it, not take it as shrink-wrapped, but to actually open it up and ask yourself what actually happens beyond the screen in front of us, what happens beyond the technology that has come to dominate our lives 
but also that plays such a significant role in, in world politics and the politics of conflict these days. And so the idea behind that is twofold. Number one is that we can actually learn an awful lot by opening our senses up towards that kind of technology, how it works, how it functions in the first place. But secondly, I'm a strong believer that it actually enables learning much more if you can add, turn this into, in a way, a self-experiential activity for students where you boil down certain topics and tasks that we do into um, exercises that they can perform for the technology that they are using and then generate something out of that and then allow students to re-engage with that. So, and that is sort of the idea that I have, you know, first tried on the MOOC and do now in my classroom um, all the time is that for every topic, we have obviously the topic, the kind of cognitive learning element, the readings and the seminars, but there's always like a practical activity that they have to do that helps them engage with these topics in a different way. And that can be a sensory thing, that can be a self-experiential thing, that can be doing small tasks on their machines and so on. So that's in a way what led to us to add this to the different elements of, of pedagogical tools that we wanted to build into that MOOC itself. Can... Uh, uh, uh... I want to bring this to life uh, for the listeners here a little bit. So um, one of the kind of cool um, activities, and there were many, uh, it, it, by the way, when I'm referring to um, uh, Sebastian's writings on this, I'm specifically drawing from a piece uh, in 2021 in the journal International Studies Perspectives um, that was called Teaching International Relations Through the Format of a Massive Open Online Course, or MOOC, uh, co-authored with Carrie Finn, who uh, Sebastian has already mentioned in this conversation. Um, now, uh, there was a data set, uh, and I'd like you to explain this for the listeners and what you had the students do with this data set that was um, from uh, the cell phone of a Swiss parliamentarian, okay? Um, I think it was a fairly untreated data set. You were just giving them the raw data and just, uh, you know, distributing this to basically however many students you had at the time and getting them to kind of crowdsource what was in this data and, and come to their own, uh, through a process of deliberation, uh, come to their own kind of conclusions about what the significance of the contents of this data set were and uh, for the politics of data mining and surveillance today, right? So, so what did that look like uh, for you as the teacher? What can you just talk me through the the, the sort of blow by blow of, of of this particular classroom activity? Yeah. So I think maybe it's good to try to bring this alive, right? So this is when we have the topic of of surveillance going on in in the MOOC itself, and so you know. There is, again, various videos. They are quite they're some of my favorite ones because we were lucky enough to win Glenn Greenwald. Who was yeah. The journalist now, did you go to meet him? Snowden. 
Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, I had said in these negotiations yeah. with the universities, like there are like three key experts. Yeah. If they say yes to be interviewed, we need to have it in the budget to just travel to these locations. And Glenn Greenwald is based in Rio. So he said yes. And so yeah. we flew to Rio on that on that whirlwind trip there just to interview him, right? And, and you met so all the, the dogs. Idea, yes. Did you go to his house? So for me, <laughs> no, no, it took it took place. Oh. That's, that's for a whole different uh, podcast episode on like okay. where we met and how that how that all happened. Okay, but very in good. The end, um, you know, the idea here was like it's much better. I mean, you know, the other person I tried to win was Edward Snowden, and you know, he said no. But you know, Glenn Greenwald, being at that point renowned as the world's most eminent investigative journalist on surveillance, when he said yes, it was like okay, how can we? tell that story of surveillance by actually have him tell that story, right? Not just of the revelations, but what they signified and so on. And so we built the content around us going to Rio, him telling us about this. Then we, um, you know, students answer various things. We also go to the Stasi archives of the former GDR in East Germany. So we can actually do an actual comparison between, you know, the big data mining in the digital world that's going on today versus what was regarded in the analog age as a very efficient, um, you know, intelligence uh, gathering system, the Stasi, and had like, you know, their expert talk, go take us through these archives and explaining this. We talked to Ron Diebert about all these things. So, you know, you get a really great insight into all of this. But then when we talk about, you know, like you can talk about how metadata is what it is that they're actually primarily after uh, under the mantra of collect it all. And that it actually allows you to so see so much more than what you could glean from actually looking at the content of, of communication. And, you know, it's one thing to say this. It's another thing to illustrate this. So what we do then is to ask students in one of the tasks then to, um, to look at a spreadsheet that we hand out. And this is a spreadsheet that contains the raw metadata that was collected from the mobile phone of a Swiss member of parliament, Balthasar Gletli, um, who had uh, requested those from his uh, mobile phone service provider and had made them public. And what they see is a spreadsheet that just has metadata, 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 right? So we ask them to look at this. Um, which doesn't really show that much. And then in the next link, they have to go to a website where that data has been used to actually visualize it onto a map. And then you can click through it and you can actually see all the information that you get. You can see the exact geolocation, where that person has been traveling, like the communications that has been sent out through which kind of format, if it's a text message or a phone call or an email and so on. And then you have one particular um, option there to click on the network. And then it pops up and it's beautifully done. A network in different colors where just from the metadata, it's possible to already categorize people into are these human rights lawyers, are these um, asylum seeker groups, mm -hmm. are these his family and wife, colleagues in parliament, and so on. And that's sort of a moment that really is eye-opening to the students, right? Yeah. So this is in a way to kind of make them engage with some of that media. Right. And to kind of, I think that brings about a type of learning that, in, in a way, it's much richer and much better than 
you could actually convey if you just told them that story, right? Yeah, it's it seems it seems very much to to be one of those kind of like dream scenarios in a classroom where uh, you actually get the students to kind of come to their own conscious uh, sort of uh, learning, um, and that's something we talk about a lot in pedagogy, but it's, I think, easier said than done. And what just kind of struck me about this, I mean, this is a show where we talk a lot about, amongst other things, the potential of technology. And we try to, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a non-idealist uh, way, we try to talk about the, if you will, the realism of uh, a sort of a, a project of technological emancipation, right? You know, it's a, we're not we're not um, you know utopian necessarily about this, but we 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 want to take the opportunities of technology seriously. It's very interesting to hear you talk about um, MOOCs, uh, which are you know as we've said uh, often um, criticized um, as having this amazingly rich potential to create these sort of nuanced pedag pedagogical moments, uh, which which we all know, anyone who's a teacher knows that these are kind of like diamond moments. You know, they're very, very, uh, in a sense, um, um, uh, uh, very much easier to talk about than to actually produce. And I think that's just sort of, that's that's a very interesting thing to, to flag here for the listeners. Um, MOOCs get a hard time, um, but you know, you found this way to take this this platform, uh, this massive platform, and leverage it uh, in these interesting ways. So, I, I don't know if you want to if you wanted to sort of comment on that sort of meta level of 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 what you've achieved here with this. So, if we can jump in, there there are also things that we couldn't do, but but which I now do in my on campus course. Um, for example, on the topic of surveillance, what I make my students on campus do is before we meet as a whole course in a very three hour practical, what I call a media lab, and the entire course comes together, and we do these kinds of practical things there, is that they have to um, go around their weekly lives and through their phones take pictures of public CCTV cameras that they encounter. I'm very careful to say, don't do this at an army base or a bank. Or a <laughs> right? But like do this with the geotagging on and email them to me. And they have to take uh, pictures of at least 10 different CCTV cameras and note down whether there's any information about who runs these, right? And, and perhaps what happens to that footage and so on. So they sent this to me. And before we meet in that class where everyone comes together, I actually just upload them onto a Google map. And so we, in a way, can see, and I make that available at the beginning of the class, so we can see the public CCTV cameras here in Brisbane that the course has encountered, right? And then we sort of take it from there. But it's a really useful exercise for the simple reason that, you know, we are oblivious to the omnipresence of CCTV cameras, which of course have something to do with surveillance here. We don't question their existence. But what's interesting is that once we, turn the gaze of our own camera back at these CCTV cameras, something really interesting tends to happen. First of all, a lot of students feel extremely uncomfortable doing this. Yeah. And you can question that, that mm. power asymmetry, when we are living in a liberal society where you don't do anything illegal, but why do we feel uncomfortable? And some students get approached by, um, by people on the street saying like, why do you take pictures of those cameras? Um, 
but it allows for an interesting form of engagement. It's really, really simple. Everyone can do this through their phones, right? And put this in. Now I do this in the on-campus course. I wanted to do this in the MOOC because I thought, hey, one of the great things of the MOOC is you can crowdsource things. And we have been using this throughout as another method, actually. Like we make the learners produce things all the time, be this surveys, be this things that they upload, screenshots that they do. And of course, you can then put them up on like really amazing interactive world maps um, and infographs and so on, which, you, which we then always ask the learners to look at the entirety of what others have uploaded and answer questions on that. So that idea of crowdsourcing, making students do something individually and then re-engage with what everyone else has been doing can be really wonderful. And you can imagine with a MOOC where you have, you know, thousands of people doing this, you actually get like a database or at least some sort of data set that it's not representative but it is something that you can sometimes only dream about having in a normal classroom. And so I wanted to do that while we do lots of crowdsourcing things in the MOOC and engagement with those, I wanted to have that surveillance of public CCTV camera exercise in the MOOC as well. And that's when the university reigned in, I think rightly so, by saying like, well, you know, we are not just having learners <laughs> from the United States and Australia and Germany and France, but we're going to have learners from... Iran, and we might have them from some authoritarian regimes around the world, and we don't want any student to actually end up landing in prison, right? right? So that, that tells you something how you need to kind of then also think in, in a slightly different way about what you can do through that medium and where you also need to be really cautious how you use it. Interesting, interesting. So, uh, Sebastian, you know, we've obviously been through an interesting 18 months. Um, I think probably on the minds of many listeners to this show right now, especially those who are educators, um, would be whether and how your view on MOOCs might have shifted, changed, or been modified in some shape or form by the events of our experience with the pandemic. Um, obviously, countless countries around the world, uh, we've had so many forms of social interaction shifting online. I was just talking to a good friend of mine the other day, um, and I won't obviously mention any names, but that person was, uh, I, I know al already for some time that this person is a recovering alcoholic, and that's not neither here nor there, uh, but um, this person, uh, as a part of their recovery process, um, has been going to Alcoholics Anonymous for many years and um, during the pandemic has taken to going to online AA meetings, um, you know, and these are available all over the world. Uh, similarly, I think, um, you know, I know some people who have experienced de dealing with, um, you know, the Alzheimer's community, those kinds of meetings and self-help groups and support groups have sort of become global as well. <laughs> uh, it's very, very interesting to hear you talk about, even already before the pandemic emerges, dealing with, contacting with uh, students, um, you know, basically on a global basis. Um, I'm just curious, you know, do you, I guess this is a question that kind of can flow two ways. Uh, on the one hand, how does your experience working with these modalities prior to the pandemic shape the way that you yourself kind of handled your main job, which is as a teacher, of course, um, during this time? But then conversely, um, has the experience in the pandemic kind of 
are are there are there ways that it has shaped your own sort of thoughts about what MOOCs are and what they can be, and are there ways that you think that your experience um, is is kind of um, ha- contains an important message or or an you know something that people need to be paying attention to, um, as many of us who don't have your experience kind of scratch our heads and struggle like with the question of like where does education go from here. Wow, Nick, you're asking huge questions here. So maybe as a, as a starter, one of the things that I think is really important to state here is that I had this huge advantage with the MOOC that I was given this big budget, that I was given time to do things. And I was given this, this amazing team of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, learning designer, there was like filmmakers, there were editors. I had like someone who was just there to build animations. We built 41 animations that are Good in Lord. the MOOC, yeah, right? Well, and yeah. I was able to travel around and really visually bring this alive and make it <laughs> interesting. So it's not just me as a boring talking head. And, you know, like you can't do this with an ordinary course for all sorts of reasons, just because the material support isn't there. Okay, so I think there's there's certain limits, but it doesn't mean that, you know, only a a MOOC that has that kind of support or online teaching that has that kind of material support can be good. I think you can do with very, very little. And that's in a way the beauty of all the technology. You don't need that much. Right. And I come to, I think, what I think is really important for what it is that you need um, in a second. But to say, like when COVID struck and we, you know, flipped everything into online learning. I mean, yes, I was a bit nervous, but at the same time, because I had gone through this, I was like certainly much less nervous than many of my colleagues, you know, because like, okay, I've I've done online stuff before. So I got, I had a very clear sense of what it is that, how I'm going to run it, how I'm going to do it, you know, and then it was like the fiddly thing. Well, how does that Zoom thing actually work? You know, like all these things we have been through, right? So, um, but I think that there is a fundamental difference still between something like a MOOC and what we now experience as our learning reality day to day. And that is, you know, a MOOC is because it can be done by anyone all the time around the world. It's never live. I mean, the course is live. You can do it, but there's no live interaction happening in the way we run like a Zoom seminar. So the live interpersonal dimension is something that is not something you really have in a MOOC right? But you have in the classroom. So that's the big asset that you have that you don't have in a MOOC. And, you know, in all the research, and that's where I come to, like, perhaps what it is that we need to understand here is that quite often my experience has been with us shifting into, into online teaching due to COVID has been that people have tended, and I sometimes do this as well, to always think about the technological means first before they think about what it is that they actually want to do in terms of learning. And I think that's the wrong approach, right? It's very important to actually always think about like, how do I, what do, what is it that I want learning to look like and what I want us to do? And then think of like, how can I tailor this around the technology that is available? Because otherwise you lose sight of learning actually being effective. And There's a lot of really amazing research going on. John Hattie at the University of Melbourne, an emeritus professor, has done meta studies of what makes student learning most efficient. And he's looked at high school students and university students. And he's looked at what is it that makes a positive contribution to how effective students learn. And 
what he has found is that there's a huge chunk of stuff that we tend to think about that really contributes to students doing well. It's the technology, having technology available, having small class sizes, having individual support, having financial support, perhaps something like the, you know, to what extent, uh, what's the background that students bring to this? All of this doesn't make a difference whatsoever. Even while you can't obviously do well unless you are an expert in what it is that you teach, the most important thing that impacts on how well students learn are factors like, to what extent do I treat my students with respect? Uh. To what extent do I permit my students to make errors and for errors to occur in the classroom from which we can actually learn? It's these kinds of personal factors that are there. Right. So it's what I'm trying to say here is like it's very important to focus on, you know, what it is that I want to convey, how I convey it in terms of learning and then actually think about think about the technology. Secondly, because we can find those different apps, we can find those tools. Right. But if we put the technology first, I think we actually going to diminish the quality of what we're offering. And maybe as a final thought, what I think has happened um, with us all moving into COVID, I'd be curious to maybe hear what, what your experience was, is that um, a lot of, my impression is that um, the level and the quality of what we're actually offering has, has declined compared to when we had things happening in the classroom. And I think what has happened is that a lot of people, you know, especially when we were asked to do this from one day to the next was, let's just sort of try and make it through here. So we kind of just kept on doing what we're doing, right? So either people have scrapped the lectures or they have shortened them or they still do them as a two-hour lecture just happening to be on Zoom. And they haven't really adjusted at all, right? And then, um, and, and the second thing that has happened is that people who have ventured in their on-campus teaching beyond the traditional classical lecture tute kind of dimension had really innovative interactive things with it that they have tended to scrap them because it just seemed to be too complicated to actually do this online. Right. right? And so I think what has happened is that now that we've taught so long in this mode that we have just kept on teaching like that. And so in a way, here's my call to kind of you know, once you not think about the technology first and foremost, but think about what it is that I want to convey and then think about and talk to people how you might be able to convey it, you know, you can, you can bring those kinds of really important elements back into even the Zoom online classroom. Yeah, I mean, uh, Zoom itself is, 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 a, is a great platform. I have enjoyed, for example, the opportunities it affords that to me are almost like better than in a real classroom, you know, to, to, to create uh, sort of group breakout uh, sessions and to, as an instructor, to visit those different breakouts and set up polling within them for different kinds of questions at the end uh, that can provoke classroom discussion and then feedback to the whole class. But on the other hand, yes, I could certainly see that some of the complicated, um, kind of activities that we've been talking about in the course of this conversation are are just going to hit a kind of a technological limit in terms of what can be deployed live um, in a zoom uh, based classroom whereas I think um, you know uh, in, in, a, in a in a in a in an in-person classroom I think those are a little more easy to overcome um, 
Can I come in here quickly? Of course. Because, you know, like I'm, I, I can hear this from you, Nick, and I do not long for anything more than actually being back in a normal university classroom setting. Um, and I'm not saying this because it would make the preparation for it easier. It would make discussions less clunky and, you know, feel less like a, um, it always has to go back to the, the, the teacher to then call in the next person to bring them in. Uh, just because I, I really, I really miss this. But I think also that, and that's my suspicion, is that, you know, university, universities all struggling with, you know, reduced international student tuition fees. You know, I think, I suspect, see this as something that probably will never fully disappear even once COVID is gone. So I think at the very least, we will be finding ourselves teaching more courses online or in hybrid mode and so on. So I think in a way, you know, like the types of, we, we will be forced in a way to kind of live with that for a longer time. And, um, you know, whilst MOOCs are definitely not the panacea of all the kinds of issues and they've got lots of issues and limits within themselves, then nevertheless, not all of them, but a few of them, I think, give us a couple of really good ideas of what could potentially be done online, right? And we can, we can learn from how they try to facilitate teaching in a slightly different way, whilst we're longing for a return to the physical classroom. Well said. Uh, so, so wh where does this all go for you from here? I mean, are you still going to be teaching MOOCs? Um, I think uh, I may have heard you're you've been working on a grant to sort of further your study of um, uh, the way the media and entertainment industry have re complex relationships with with the military, you know, especially in the U.S., but I'm sure in other countries as well. Um, are, are you going to continue to to, to teach this material in a MOOC or, or, or what happens from here? Yeah, so the MOOC has been running for about five years now and um, the university has now approached me to say they want to have a full overhaul, okay. right? that including like, well, do we need new topics? Do we need to reshoot and so on? So um, we'll, we'll start talking about this um, by the end of this year and then mm -hmm. see where this leads us. Um, I mean, the advantage I have is that, you know, we do what we do here is like we do research led teaching. So like this is one of my research areas and, um, you know, I'm working in that space anyway. Um, so it's kind of fun to to think about that and to kind of be able to update things quite, quite nicely. Um, but there's also the question of like, you know, am I prepared to invest yet again so much into the MOOC and to be sure. quite fair as well is that you know if you are in the kind of more research focused universities which UQ clearly is in then mm -hmm. you know we all know that uh, the teaching is um, yeah it is something that is uh, not as important as they sometimes tend to say. Right? We have to choose so, our words carefully here don't we? <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and I've tried to be as as frank as I possibly <laughs> as you, I can be and yeah. so you know like uh, there's the big question here it's like I mean it's been fun it's been a wonderful experience to be able to have done this mm. but you know what does it add to me to kind of now update it right in an in a, in extensive way that I'm also happy with when at the same time all what universities are looking for is 
you know, what's the research output? How much uh, funding can you actually generate? Those sorts of elements. And but you know, like there is, as you maybe as a as a lead into what you had also asked about, like with um, a couple of colleagues, we are uh, we started doing really extensive research on the close collaboration between the entertainment liaison offices that are run by the CIA and the Pentagon have been running for a long time right. um, to um, collaborate with Hollywood filmmakers and TV producers. And we are fortunate enough that we have through FOIA requests received um, something like 20,000 internal files of communications, of negotiations between filmmakers in Hollywood and these ELO offices. Um, and, you know, like anyone who works in this space would know that this, these offices are not secret, but they haven't exactly been transparent. And there has been a lack of evidence, hard evidence where we could say, okay, here has been clear collaboration between, say, the Pentagon and Hollywood, um, Top Gun, Black Hawk Down, we know some of the Marvel films, but the literature really points to something like where we have firm evidence, like 150 type of productions. Now, you know, these, these gigantic amounts of files that we now have that we're vetting through already indicate that we're talking about like at least 10 times the amount of films. And, you know, and you can really uh, analyze the reasons for why they deny scripts for the reasons for why they change, make change uh, requests for scripts and how the extent to which filmmakers have adopted those. So it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And, you know, again, this is something that builds into one of the topics in the MOOC where we look into that, um, which could benefit from some update here, but, you know, which also kind of made me interested in this topic in the first place uh, and where we had the chance to interview um, Phil Strubb, who had been the head of the Pentagon's entertainment liaison office for 27 years, right? Who was surprisingly frank about, you know, the interest that they pursue and so on, right? Again, an example of how here, rather than me telling this to students, the students actually really meet that guy yeah, right. They hear him talk about this, these sorts of things. So, yeah. So that's sort of what's on the agenda at the moment. Great. Well, Sebastian, I hope we can uh, seduce you to come back on the show uh, when this uh, new project develops a little bit more, and uh, then we can hear how you are faring uh, with the MOOCs in a post-pandemic world. Uh, you know, whether whether we're all moving in the direction you've already gone and you've become kind of a beacon and a guiding light for us all in 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 a sense, or or perhaps we've all kind of gone back to the to the old normal and uh and, and resumed our uh teaching as before, perhaps uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> as as someone who does I will admit, uh, tend to uh, get get into those sort of longer hour, two hour long lectures. I can I can tell you, uh, you know, these these sorts of conversations are always a provocation for me, and uh, I, I think it's it's good to be aware of the limits of that modality, uh, even though I I think I probably do defend it in in some ways as well. But um, hey, look, before we go, um, you're not just a mooker. You're also a podcaster and a scholar. Where can people follow your work uh, online? Yeah, so the the podcast, which is a more recent thing, and it's about uh, teaching and about uh, what we do in the classroom um, and really build around clear examples, practical things that people do and that's uh, 
the focus on that's called higher ed heroes you can find it with any podcast provider higher ed um, heroes higher ed heroes that's right um, no buzzwords. We actually have a, a buzzer, a stop buzzer. When so, if I had, that's why I was said earlier, like spaced learning. I had to buzz my myself in the, yeah. in the top right? <laughs> okay. So we want to we want to avoid that kind of jargon and really yeah. focus on what matters, i.e., what what we make great students do. I'll put a I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes. Um, I'll also put a link to the uh, International Studies Perspectives article so people can check that out if they want to download it. And uh, we'll also put a, a link to your profile and, and your Twitter or whatever on there as well. So, hey, listen, this was great. Thanks very much for, for coming on and talking to us about these uh, pedagogical developments. And uh, I think we will all benefit from keeping our eye on them and from uh, people who are sort of blazing that trail for us as teachers, um, because uh, I, I suspect these, uh, I do suspect that these uh, sort of approaches are uh, are here to stay and uh, we all better uh, learn to to adapt to them. Um, or, uh, or what, or, 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 or else what happens to us, Sebastian, if we don't, uh, if we don't, if we don't uh, adapt to this. I think it's a great uh, thought to end up on. Yeah, we'll just leave guessing. it. We we'll leave it pregnant. Okay, very good, excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks as well. Luke.